Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, my name is Hugh Owen. I am the CEO of Arc Data Centers. We provide a data center space, high integrity data center space, very secure to both the private and the public sectors here in the UK. Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Series, and more importantly, welcome to uh, your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks. Thank you welcome, very much. Jonathan. Thanks, Hugh. It's great to have you on the series. And um, as you know, we have leaders on who are recommended by others inspiring and the people who work for you recommended you. And so it's, it's lovely having you on here and also nice to know some connections you and I have found as we yeah. started to chat before, which was quite small nice. World. Very small world, uh, including my own colleague, Foggy, um, yeah. for Varg. Um, and uh, he's done very well for himself, which I'm pleased to see Certainly too. Has. So, um, Talk a bit about what you're doing at the moment, but also you've had a fascinating uh, career, whether it's working in the Royal Hong Kong Police, being a lawyer, going to Cambodia, a whole variety of things, which I think you need to write a book. I'm dying to read your book when you get around to writing it. But give us a flavour of what you're doing now, a, a bit of your journey from early childhood to where we are now. And who kind of shaped you into the leader that people admire today? Thank you. Um, Obviously today I'm the CEO of Arc Data Centers. Um, I arrived at Arc Data Centers now almost eight years ago, which is unbelievable wow. following a recapitalization of the, the business. It's a great business, great people. Um, we deliver very high integrity, very secure data centers to both the private sector and the public sectors. And I think we're quite well known as well for being the joint venture partner to the UK government through Crown Hosting. So um, Welsh by birth, um, my father started down the pits at 14, um, didn't see the light of day during winter, pretty grim life, and one that he wasn't willing to tolerate. I think he's certainly a very sort of big character in my life and quite a um, founding uh, individual, the cornerstones of who I am. I think um, my father has to take a good deal of um, Credit for, he got on a plane and went to Africa. He arrived in Zambia. He was in charge of a gang of 120 lashes deep down in the bowels of the copper mines there. And over a 15 year period, rose up through um, Anglo-American to take on very, very senior roles. Age seven, I think my father worked out that he wanted two things for me, a strong work ethic and a good education. So he shipped me off to Rhodesia or Zimbabwe as it is now and handed me over to um, a bunch of Jesuits. And I think they've got a saying, give us the boy of seven and we will give you the man. I think there's a degree of um, truth in that statement. Um, came back from Africa. I went to university in North Wales, selected for the mountains and the sea and very few other reasons. Um, after university, bought myself a second hand bicycle, cycled across Europe, uh, arrived at the Syrian border, back to Greece, 
uh, worked on Crete on a building site and eventually came home. Very fair questions from my parents. What are you going to do with your life? Um, I thought about going a bit Beaujes and, you know, joining the um, Foreign Legion. Um, but I saw an advertisement in a Sunday supplement of the Royal Hong Kong Police, filled it in, sent it away, thought, well, I'll be gone before it arrives back. But the next Thursday, I think it was, took a phone call and they invited me down to Swansea, I think on the Friday, um, for an interview. And I met two chaps. They had a chat, travelled a lot, secure sort of upbringing. They were looking for graduates. It was normally ex-army officers or people with their sergeant's exams. Um, came up to probably the most intimidating interview I've ever done in my life with these very sort of ex-colonial sorts, you know, commissioner of police from Uganda was one of them. Um, and I got selected. I think there were 11 of us out of quite a few thousand people applied. So I got on the plane to Hong Kong, had a fantastic time in Hong Kong, you know, world class, a bit like your own backward, you know, background, Jonathan, you know, places like Santos, they're world class at taking young men and sort of molding them and teaching them and giving them the sort of expertise and the thought around what they're doing. And then a bit like you guys, you get handed over to regimental sergeant majors who are world-class at telling sir that he's got it right or he's got it wrong and bringing a lot of experience to bear. With us, they were station sergeants. So as a subunit commander, then I commanded a specialized six-month sojourn in a task force. And then I went to crime wing where it all got a bit serious and your bloke stopped calling you sir and started calling you Dilo if they liked you, which is big brother. Um, had a fantastic time. Some of the work I was doing there was quite pointy. Obviously the triad's quite good at crime. Um, and we had lawyers seconded to us around chain of evidence and keeping us on this straight and narrow because there were some quite high net worth individuals in that criminal fraternity who would fly silks out from the UK to defend them. And um, my now wife, then girlfriend had come out. She was a doctor. She was wanting to be a surgeon and I had the big decision to take, which was, do I follow her back to the UK? And if I do, what the hell am I gonna do? So I put myself through law school. I then applied to law firms somehow, non-Oxbridge, non-aristocratic. Um, how I got into Farrow's, God only knows, but I did, you know, the Royal Law Firm. I had a fantastic time there and qualified into litigation. So I became a litigator, felt a bit like a caged tiger. So I applied for and got a role with the Asia Foundation and they seconded me to the Ministry of Justice in Cambodia called Cham Sagoon. Had the pleasure in 94 of sitting out the last dry season Khmer Rouge offensive. Wow. As I'm in the north of the country with a stellar strategy of a bag a rucksack full of water dried flute and two spare clips for an AK-47 and that was run at night high during the day which might have worked I'm not sure it was never tested fortunately. Um, I came back I did some consultancy with the UN around Tajikistan desperately wanted to go out there and was off the roll to head up the legal reform project in Tajikistan. My wife as you might understand thought what was I doing and where was this leading so asked me to do three interviews with law firms did interview with DLA um, they took me on had a fantastic time at DLA a lot of troubleshooting I think we took on the Russian states who owed a bank in the city money seized their national um, fishing fleet so I was all over the world doing that very exciting and then I got headhunted by electronic data systems the former Ross Perot outfit and I basically became head of dispute resolution for Europe, Middle East and Africa. 
then later took on um, a global role around A2 Kearney when they acquired that around problems and disputes and investigations. And that morphed, it morphed into, you know, this country isn't working, can you go and take a look? And then eventually I took over Startup, which is all of the businesses, contract new business stood across a mere 100 million or greater. Could I work with teams that I brought on board and recruited to stand it up two point of sale first time and do it right? And I was quite enjoying that great team of people. And I was then asked to go into the defense information infrastructure to do the turnaround on that, obviously a massive project. And then I took over HP acquired um, EDS in the intervening period. And I took over from uh, Sir Robert Fry and took over the whole of the defense business, brought um, DII in under that and combined that. And then I moved to BT for a really short period, driving the global health business, just sort of fixing some of the breaks there. And then I was approached by my current investors around ARC. And I just felt it was time to leave big corporates and sort of apply everything I'd learned in those corporates into a business setting that I had my arms around completely. And I brought some guys that I thought were best in breed with me. And we set about at ARC, we simply had one rule. Why don't we create the business that we always wanted to work for? And that's what we've done. You know, investors, people have given us platinum, high performance organization, my people say we're in the top 1%. We put a huge amount of store by that culture and our people and it being a good place to work because then you get the outcomes that we've had, which has been phenomenally fast growth over the last eight years. And it has been a place I've enjoyed working at and doubtless all of the employees do as well. And that's a, a big badge of pride with us. So um, it's been a hell of a journey and I've, I've really enjoyed it. I don't look back. One of those lucky people, I have very, very few regrets, if any, that are meaningful in any way. Yeah, what, what a story. That's great. Definitely yeah. a book. And if, if you were to write a book, what would the title be? Wow. Um, maybe that's the title. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, a life well lived, a journey. Yeah. It would be something along those lines. I've always had this burning sense of time. Um, we had this phenomenal priest, Jesuit priest at school called Father Channy Pierce, long flowing locks and a beard. He looked rather like sort of everybody thought Jesus Christ would look like. Very cool, ran the Exploration Society, phenomenally bright, very driven, um, taught us how to abseil. You know, we went through rector's windows, all of that sort of stuff. And I remember he used to give free haircuts. And I remember him saying to me, he said, you, you do know, boy, that if you spend eight hours a night asleep, that's 20 years of your life, de facto dead. And I, it's always stuck with me, this clicking, sort of ticking clock, that time is that incredibly precious thing. And, and we live on this phenomenal planet full of challenge and vibrance and difference and you know, just being out in it and colliding, what's the worst thing that could happen? And I, so I think so far, it's sort of an exciting life well lived. And, you yeah. know, that's genuinely how I feel about it. It's just been a lot of fun. You know, yeah. it's, I've enjoyed it. Genuinely yeah. enjoyed it. Hopefully there's more to come, but yeah. genuinely yeah. enjoyed it. Well, it comes across and one hell of a series of experiences. And if you look at those experiences throughout your life thus far, what yeah. would you say would be um, some of your proudest moments and what you learned from those? 
and also some of your personally or work-related darkest moments or a dark moment and what you learned from that, those two imposters and treating them just the same. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. You know, I've, I've talked about this with people before and the, the thing I've said quite often surprises them around my proudest, you know, like personally, what I was I really proud of. In Hong Kong, I was incredibly in my environment. I was surrounded by a very sort of A-type driven, what did my wife or girlfriend at the time, uh, the most dysfunctional collection of mesomorphic misfits I've ever had the mishap to meet, including my university rugby team. So I was really happy in amongst this very sort of can-do, dare-doing, life-by-the-throat bunch but I had a girlfriend that, you know, I thought the world of and went on to marry and thank God I did. Um, and I had to come back to Britain and she was very, very successful. She went on to be top in her surgical exams in Britain. So phenomenal intellect. And so I had to do two things. I had to take a decision, stay comfortable or, or commit to something that wasn't going to be necessarily as easy. And then I had to do this magic moment where I was going to take myself to law school. I was always in the A stream at school, but lawyers were those top three or four kids in the class. Um, the old LSF at law school was pretty brutal. You know, they moved the pass. It could be as low as 40% and maybe 50, 60%. And also there were two outcomes for me. I would be broke at the end of it. And that was certain. I would spend everything I'd earned in Hong Kong. So I would be broke at the end. And there was one other outcome. Either I would have a qualification or I wouldn't. So it was commitment to coming back. It was commitment to something that wasn't going to be natural, natural to me. I was going to have to put my head down, commit, study, do something I really didn't want to do for an outcome that I wanted. And I did. I put my head down. I committed. I worked damn hard. I am um, the moment going up to King's Cross, the newspaper the night before, seeing that, that I got through them and I was in a bloody good law firm. Um, I'm actually really proud of that because there's a lot of things I'm really proud of, but you'd sort of expect you to do that. It's the cards I've been delivered. That wasn't naturally a set of cards I've been delivered. So I quite like that. I look back and I feel proud. Dark moments, look, I've seen some really, really ugly stuff in my time and I've had to deal with some really, really ugly situations, undoubtedly. You grow from them, you learn from them. But there's, there's one situation that has always stuck out in my mind because I did regard it as a failure. And it's a failure that I'm very good at working out what went wrong. What can I learn from it? And it gets filed. I'm quite rational, quite logical. But there was a situation when I was in subunits that I was called out to a um, suicide situation, a guy on a very, it was, he was on like the 33rd or the 34th floor of a, a building and there were two large blocks with like the name of it on like a concrete arch between them and he'd crawled out onto the middle of it and was sat there. And um, I went up and, you know, nobody was very keen to go out and I climbed a lot at university and I said, look, if you put a cable on me, let me see if I can shunt out, keep talking to the guy and if I can talk him back in. And I just felt if I go out on a limb, you know, there's always the thing about people grab, grabbing and all the rest. So it's a lot of warm, warming against it. So crawled out on this ledge and got closer and got this sort of dialogue going with this guy and got him to look at me. And 
And literally, I felt, I've got him. I've got him. I'm going to bring him back in. And I was talking to him, and I just put my hand out, and I said, just take my hand. And um, he sort of turned, looked at me, leant forward, and just went. And I just watched him fall away from me. And it was late at night. And um, I just sort of lay there. And I, I, I didn't know what I'd done wrong. And I'd say it's one of the few situations that I haven't been able to process. You know, how, did I do something wrong? Was it culturally wrong? You know, he was Chinese. I, you know, did I not make the connection? But I genuinely felt I had. And he never told me to stay. You know, I was making that progress, take my time. So I'd say that's one of my blackest moments because I did carry it as I'd, I'd set it out to do something and I had failed. You know, the outcome was not the outcome that I was after. And I couldn't file it very easily either. So I think that's sort of the standout to me, just a, a dark moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and what you learn from them, you, you learn that, you know, in one instance, the proudest, that however unnatural or how much you don't want to do something, if you truly commit and truly apply yourself, there's very little you can't do. Um, the dark moment, you, you can't always win. No. However much you want to, you can't always win. And you've yeah. got to accept that fact. You know, it's, I can remember when I found his family and sort of apologized to them and, but you can't always win. You know, I, and I don't know what I did wrong either, but you know, it's, it's never, even now talking about it, it's quite funny. I, I still don't feel comfortable with it as an experience and it must be one of the few that I haven't just filed, you know, yeah. it's um, odd. I, and I can't imagine what that must have been like, Hugh, but if it's any solace, I, I, I always find in those situations, it's about controlling the controllables. You can yeah. control your own thoughts and your own actions. You can't control his thoughts and his actions. He um, may have premeditated or whatever had gone on, but that yeah. was beyond your reason choice. That was not your yeah. choice. That was his choice. He yeah. made a choice to go and you were doing everything you could. Absolutely. God, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one. That's a tough yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, deep respect for you for what you've been through and and thinking about the learning and the experiences you've had Hugh with a father who who was such a role model uh, of what he achieved in his life um that's clearly as you say been a cornerstone for you Absolutely. if you went back and you met the 16 year old Hugh Owen now with all the experience you've had and the battle scars that you carry to this day what bit of advice would you give to the young Hugh Owen now with all the mistakes you've made and all the successes you've had? What would you say? Worry about this. Don't worry about that. What would you, what would be your advice? I am. Um, I think one of the most powerful things that it takes you time to truly um, understand is you, you tend as a very young man, you know, you're trying to find your place in the world. You're trying to, make your stamp on the world you're you've got a lot of underpinning insecurities and you feel that you're trying to prove yourself in this arena that's sort of happening to you there's a vast amount going on around you that you're trying to understand make sense of intervene in find your place and the one thing that I'd say is that the one powerful thing you have is the simple fact that it all sort of begins 
and ends in your head. You have so much control in how you control yourself. What, what's out there you can't control, you can't control of it, you're not omnipowerful. But the one thing that you've always got control over is your reaction to any situation, how you choose to perceive things around you. And I think it is powerful. You, you think of getting out of, the bed, out of bed in the morning and you, you're, you've got a, wor a world of stuff going on. Maybe you're, you've had an argument with the kids the night before, you've had a bit of an argument with your wife, you've got a shed load going on at work. You, you can let those things pour down on you and impact how you choose to interact with the world and how you choose to behave that day. And I suggest that if you allow them to, you're gonna be a little bit short. You're gonna be a little bit um, grumpy. You're going to perceive things through a negative set of optics and you're gonna interact with the world in that manner. And as you do, the reaction you'll get back from others is you know every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You get that feedback and the day generally gets bleaker and bleaker and more and more negative as you proceed through it. So my thing is, you know, choose to grasp that voice in your head and choose every time something negative appears to replace it. I think there are simple rules I employ. The first thing I think every morning now when I get up is lucky me, because I took a decision a long time ago that that is what I would choose to think every morning. Throw my feet over the bed, and I would think lucky me. And there's a million reasons you can think lucky me. Change words like got to. I've got to go to work. I've got to go to the shops. I've got to go and pick the kids up. Change it to get. Yeah. I get to go to work. I get to pick the kids up. I get to go to the shops. Because I think if you can get a grasp on that voice, you can control your thoughts and then align your words to those thoughts and then act against those words and those thoughts, and all three of those are in line, life just unfolds in a really good way. You get more positive feedback from people. You're in a positive mindset. So you give yourself the best chance to cope with what's in front of you in an optimal mm -hmm. manner. And I don't think I understood that as a 16-year-old. I didn't really understand the power of my own mind and the choices that I take and then I act on. And I'd say that's what I'd really want to hammer home. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's what I'd, I'd say, Jonathan, in truth. Very profound. And I think we've done about 168 of these episodes. And, and I think that that's the, the sharpest bit of wisdom I've heard. Thank you. Uh, really good. So, so let's go from advice to yourself when you were 16 to a trip around the Inspiring Leadership Compass. This is the work we did about what makes inspiring male and female leaders and and it, and it begins with mq moral quotient your integrity your values your beliefs what you will do and what you won't do what would be your foundational top three values that you've been brought up on by that hard-working dad of yours and all he did in the uh, zambian copper mines um and in in the welsh pits and and also what you've brought into your foundational values that you take from there that you still believe in now, what would they be? There's a slightly embarrassing story. 
which that's great. Yeah, I love, I love embarrassing. I love her. Tell the story. Tell the story. I was nine or ten, I think, and I was at a um, prep school, and uh, there were certain areas you weren't allowed to run in. And being me, I was running, and I was snatched as I ran around a corner and taken rather by surprise by a teacher, who then proceeded to backhand me across the face. Um, I'll abbreviate the story, but by the time I was pulled off, I had judo tripped the individual to the floor and taken humbridge at being slapped. And I think I was shocked as well. So anyway, I got pulled off, but you can imagine the outcome wasn't a very good one. I sat in a meeting room outside the headmistress's office as my parents drove from Zambia to um, Rhodesia. And um, I think the deal was I went to see a lady about my anger, anger management issues. <laughs> and my dad got to build the church, but I didn't get expelled. <laughs> So she was an absolutely, absolutely wonderful lady that I went to see. And about two weeks in, she said to me, look, simple fact is you've learned a brutal lesson. Adults are adults. They're good. They're bad. They're indifferent. They do right. They do wrong. I don't really in my professional capacity um, diagnose you as having particular management, anger management issues. You've just had a confrontation with authority. Um, so you can come in and you can continue to be morose and uncooperative and just turn up. And these can be entirely unproductive or we can try and make them productive together. So she had a big blackboard and we started scribbling out thoughts about things that matter to me and didn't matter to me and what I stood for and what I didn't and what a good life might look like. And she was the most fantastic lady and she had really good biscuits as well. I remember that much. <laughs> and I ended up with um, like an anagram that I scribbled down that we worked on together, which ended up as um, like BC. And what we concluded was that for the whole of my life, and there's no particular prioritization to this, that's just an anagram that I could remember, um, I would learn for as long as I lived. So I would always learn and I'd always carry a thirst for learning and I would always be inquisitive and learn. I would always behave with absolute integrity and she and I agreed that integrity was, the test was that I would do the right thing when I knew I could get away with the wrong thing and not get caught. And that would be the standard by which I would choose to live my life. Um, that I would be kind for the simple fact that I could be and it's right and proper that you are and in that regard you always give others respect not they have to earn it you just give it to them there are other human beings you should be kind and you should be respectful and let them dissuade you of that fact and not be arrogant and do it the other way and then I would always be effective but I would be enthusiastically effective. So I would reach out and lean in and always aim to be effective in any situation that I found myself. I would be bold, I would live with boldness and I would be robust. And then the C was I would always choose happy, I would always choose positive. Um, and I've probably tempered and changed what each one of those with maturity and age but since those were written on a blackboard with my um, lady god now longer ago than I care to think it's not changed 
And it sort of really, really has stuck with me. And then consistent with that was my dad had a wonderful sayings, two of which always stick with me. If a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And if you don't lie, you don't have to remember anything. I think he nicked that from somebody, but, um, but he always said it and he absolutely meant it. And I just think that those are really the rules that I govern myself by um, and have done ever since, ever since I sat in front of that blackboard. I, I think that is outstanding. I haven't had a story like that with the like might have overshared about my delinquent judo i i love i love yeah. the judo, judo throw now that's particularly yeah. important i think that's yeah. very and people will remember that you know there's 180,000 people in 55 countries listening to this they'll remember yeah. that uh, yeah. that's that fabulous love it and so from from mq to pq what gives your life meaning and purpose um what would you say you know why do you do what you do now hugh what, what, what gives your life meaning and purpose well, I suppose, truthfully, I'm terrified of being bored. I absolutely love challenge. So in a sense, I've made a career from when people run away from the flames. I'm vaguely intrigued and head the other way because I've got this sort of slightly odd view that I can always deal with the flames. But I'd say it's two things that have governed my career. And that's really protection and solutions. So I have protected people and taken huge pride in it. And that's, you know, Hong Kong, Cambodia, um, and corporations, you know, from disputes and things that were wrong that people wanted put right. I protected them from that. And in very difficult, very um, controversial situations, very contentious situations, I've provided solutions. I found a way through got the compromise, dealt with situations for businesses. I think if I'm brutally honest and my investors might lis listen to this and they might wonder, you know, businesses basically R minus C equals P, revenue less cost equals profit. I can't say that particularly excites me. I, I need more in my life than that. So what I love about ARC is I love when I arrive, people's livelihoods were at risk. Um, they're not now. People's mortgages are taken care of, people's school fees, people's holidays, people's ambitions. You look at our training program. There are no bars on our windows, locks on our doors. People that leave to bigger, better things because we haven't been able to keep them. Great news. Great news. It's lovely to see people thrive. Um, you know, I do a lot of mentoring around the bazaars, which I genuinely enjoy. And I love what we deliver on behalf of our clients. I love being the joint venture partner to the UK government. And I love what we do on their behalf because it truly matters. Um, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, ultimately, I know running a business needs profit. It's not a dirty word. It's, it's required because my shareholders have put a hell of a lot of trust in us. And that's a duty I need to fulfill. And frankly, we need it to reinvest in our business and make it the vibrant place it is. But I couldn't come in chasing that. And I think we're fools if we try because that's an outcome, not an input. So I'd be for concentrating on people and cultures and doing the right thing by your clients. And then that naturally follows. I don't think you can just chase profit. Um, I think people that just measure that on a daily basis are measuring the long, wrong things, frankly. So it's really protection and solutions, I think is what 
motivates me and drives me and gets me out of bed in the morning. Fantastic. And the next one round is health quotient, um, mental and physical health and well-being. And as with many people um, over the years, people have had tough times physically and mentally. I know I have. Um, a number of people that I've worked with have had mental challenges during the last two years. How do you yeah. look after your own health and well-being? Uh, and when you've found it tough in either situation, uh, such as crawling out on that, le uh, that ledge when the guy jumped, um, what have you done to bring yourself back on track when, when you were down a bit? Yeah, I, um, I think, first of all, you know, the life that I, I've led, you know, large parts of it would have been incredibly difficult to do unless I didn't keep myself physically fit. So I think at the core has to be a combination of what I would say is discipline and prioritization. Um, I think an awful lot of people seem, you know, what's that saying? You know, if you give me a task, I'll spend, you know, three quarters of the time sharpening my axe and then I'll apply it. And I think a lot of people just seem to hammer away with the axe that gets worn and the hearth comes out. It, it's just, it's not logical. It's not sensible behavior. So I, first of all, I um, prioritize my health. And that is a combination of um, three things, really. It's making sure that I eat well. And I think it does begin with eating well. So I try and steer away from just, you know, bad fuel, um, from pouring too much alcohol down my neck um, and relying on that as a crutch, which I think a lot of colleagues I, I witness doing that, you know, get home, drink half a bottle of wine. I would far prefer to go for a walk with the dog, watch the trees move, go to the gym, do something that gets me moving, gets oxygen flow, but also eat well. So just being disciplined about what goes in my mouth, not to the extent of being boring. I've got a theory about all things in moderation, including moderation. I really like, like letting my hair down and just drinking too much beer with mates and telling long tales and laughing a lot. I think that's very good for your well mental, mental well-being, but you can't afford to do it too often or it will catch you. Um, then it's it's really about that exercise regime. So I find, you know, CrossFit is a really efficient way of exercising in a fully functional manner. But because my passion is ski mountaineering and I spend a lot of time in the mountains, either climbing or mountaineering or ski mountaineering in the winter months, um, I need to keep endurance up and I can't afford to bulk up with a lot of weight. Um, so I've got a regime. I use Steve House's training for the uphill athlete. And I use this 24 week program as I get closer to the winter and I get, then it's having projects. So I'm off to both Finland and Kamchatka next year. And I'll go with a bunch of friends and we love just getting out into the back of beyond and, and doing that good stuff. And then it's focusing on what you have and not what you don't have. And I think, you know, in a developing country, with everything that we get up and just take for granted every day, simply reminding ourselves of that and how incredibly blessed and lucky we are. I think there's about 22,000 people a day die on this planet of hunger. You know, there is a little bit of get over yourself. I find um, the way that I process stuff when I'm struggling with stuff is I tend to walk, go to the mountains, keep active, and then I just give myself time to file 
And filing normally consists of what went wrong, what went right, how grim will this be six months from now? What do I need to learn from this? Okay, and then it goes in a filing drawer. And once I've gone through that process, and it is normally, I find it very difficult to sit still and do that. I find that I need to be active, but it's almost active and mulling on that thing. And once I've chewed on it, and once I've taken what I need from it, and I sort of understand it, it gets filed. Mm. And then I'm pretty good, because I think I am so task-driven and so forward-driven, that it sort of is then behind me. Um, and it sort of works for me, but I think all of us need, just given our characters and our personalities, to find our own way of doing it. But that broadly around health, fitness, mental well-being is mine. And obviously, I've got an absolutely brilliant wife and great family and, you know, and a very good circle of friends. And, you know, that's a huge bonus as well. Although I have to say around things that are bothering me, I find input from others quite discontent. I tend to want to be by myself, sort it out, file it, and then I'll discuss it quite happily. Once I've sorted it, I find input quite noisy as a human being, so I've learned that as well. I just get muddled with other people onloading what they think they would do because, of course, it's what they do and not what I do. So, um, But, you know, hugely healthy, happy family life and great circle of friends, which is a huge mm. support, isn't mm. it? You know? Fascinating. You are very different from so many leaders that I've met in a really healthy way. Um, and I'm really enjoying this, thank you. Uh, EQ is emotional and social intelligence. Um, you've clearly got a lot of that, whether it's, uh, you know, speak quietly and carry a big stick or whatever approach you might yeah. use, but you've, you've developed that over time. What would be a, a tip or two you would pass on uh, about emotional intelligence that you found has served you well? I think, you know, if you always approach people with kindness and respect and you don't try and prove, you know, leave your ego out of conversations, um, sit quietly, try and listen. Um, listening is one of my weaknesses. I've got to work on it quite so often. I've sort of arrived where people are heading or I sort of, and I, the instincts, and I think I've got better as I've got older, but certainly when I was younger and maybe in more pointy jobs, I think ARCs taught me a lot that way. Um, so I think that's the beginning. Then, you know, surround yourself with people that challenge you, that call out, you know, Hugh, that, that felt a bit pointy. You know, that phrase during that chat today, or, you know, I'm not sure I would say it that way. And don't be defensive about that, you know, hold your ground and explain why you did it, but listen to what they're saying. Um, and, and, and sort of don't be shy to, to engage and be you, be authentic. And I think as long as you're respectful and you're kind and people sense that you're coming from a good place, I think people are quite forgiving and they will listen and they'll try and adapt. And it's, about trying to find that common ground. And there's so much, you know, this pandemic's been brilliant um, because if you think all of a sudden we're in each other's homes, we're not stiff suits with ties sat around a meeting room table, we're in each other's homes and wives walk across the back of shots and kids run in and a dog barks and we're human and we forgive each other and there's commonality there. And I think it's been quite healthy that way. And, 
you know, we're so similar as human beings in what we want and what we desire and the outcomes. And it, I think if you can find that commonality of human beings right across cultures, you always get to a good place. You mm. always get to a good place. Yes, it's a and if somebody is an ass, they're an ass. You can yeah. deal with that as well, you know. Just, I, just be open to begin with. No, I, I like that. And, and that leads on nicely to CQ, cultural intelligence quotient, particularly your point about finding common ground. I mean, there you are um, having, you know, grown up in, and lived in so many different countries that um, understanding different cultures and respecting where they're different and where there is a thread that you can join the two up, but also the whole area of diversity, equality, and inclusion and, and having difference and diversity. What would be your advice of um, how you've developed cultural intelligence and, and, and how you play to DEI? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think a lot around this has to do with immersion and experience. So, you know, living in other people's countries, um, understanding how people are in large part the same, but there are subtle differences. You know, we have this saying, don't we, in the West, treat people as you'd like to be treated yourself. Mm. Well, that's sort of got a slight arrogance to it. Mm. I think you need to have in your mind, not that, you need to have treat people as they would like to be treated and you need to strive to try and understand what that is, which means you need to be willing to be guided. You need to ask questions. Um, you need to find people around you. And you know, when I was in uh, Cambodia, Hampirat, who was my interpreter, incredibly bright, able man, one of the first things I said to him is, look, you need to keep me on the right path. There's ways I'll do things that will not be attuned to being effective in your culture. Um, nudge me, talk to me. If you see me consistently doing things in a manner that isn't effective, let's sit down, grab a beer together and talk it through. I think the thing to remember around both culture and, you know, sort of diversity is to focus on the simple, and I can't remember the exact statistic, but I think, for instance, the difference in um, melanoma that gives us our different skin shades is something like 0.877% of our DNA or whatever it is. So we're 99.9% .9 the same. And yet we seem to focus on the 0.877 if that's the correct percentage. So try and focus on how we're, we're exactly the same. And then the other thing is block out all the noise and focus in on character. Focus on the individual and what they're bringing to the table. And by the way, just then we're 99% the same. You're focused on character, good qualities, bad qualities, and then just treat people as people. You know, we are all basically the same. We've got these nuances around behaviors and what's acceptable, not acceptable. We're bright enough to learn that from each other. So that's sort of my step. But I think I have been incredibly lucky, indeed privileged, to have all these different experiences mm. that have schooled me. And, you know, Hong Kong, I think of my, my team in crime wing or my first station sergeants, that the little things they said to you, or, you know, Chinese colleagues that just pointed out to you that it wasn't really perceived that way. And Cambodia the same and Africa the same. And so it's, it's just been that, that schooling that, 
listening to people and being told what's right and what's wrong and bearing that in mind. And then even in other countries, you know, even European countries, innovative and different ways that people come at problems, bearing that in mind that everybody has something to bring to the table and being open to that fact, I think is the heart of it. Mm. Um, and enjoying it, enjoying people, enjoying life, you know, it's... I, I do think that our data centers are very lucky to have you with the wisdom and experience that you've gained. I, you really do stand out as quite exceptional from a whole variety of different people who've been on the series with the ability for you to share your wisdom. And I'm sure if you are a mentor to people and you give talks at our data center, they'll be very wise to listen because that's, that's deep wisdom from experience. Isn't that lovely saying that, uh, I learned a lot of my experience from the mistakes I've made. I think I'm going to go and make a few more mistakes. I've made yeah. a, a ton. But look, Fail thank you. Fast. Exactly. And talk about mistakes and learning from them. What about RQ, resilience? So the, the, um, there's two more, which is brand and legacy. But um, yeah. if you were to give one, one tip on bouncing back from adversity and resilience, what would be your tip for that? Do you know, I, I think I'm really bad around this. And sometimes I don't think I'm very helpful. Um, you know, combination of old school father, Jesuits and the life I've led, you know, if I wasn't going to bounce back, I'd be in a ditch somewhere now. Mm -hmm. So I just think in terms of the, you know, short of God, illness of my kids and my wife, which would be pretty crushing, but I'm, you know, even though I'm sure you, you'd get through, I think it's this essence of focusing on what you have, um, focusing on the simple fact that even the worst things will pass. They will pass. Um, nothing lasts forever. And so that, that brings this sense of proportion, the sense of perspective, and this sense that, um, you know, while you've got breath in your lungs, you're, you, there's that saying, you're always in the fight. So it's just about staying in the fight and it will pass. You will come out the other side of whatever you've got to cope with. Um, and just keeping a sense of proportion, focusing on all of the goodness in your life, despite the thing that's genuinely bothering you, and you will get through. Mm. And time will see to that as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I genuinely, genuinely believe that. Um, yeah. And it served me well, really well. Very good. Last two, uh, before we go on to a little bit on executive teams and your favorite book and then your top tip. Um, brand, reputation, image and impact, BQ as we talk about it. Um, many CEOs are, are good at receiving 360 feedback. Um, often when I've asked them, when was the last time personally you were dead wrong? Uh, the good ones have always said frequently, make them all the time. The really, oh, yeah. the, the really ones that worried me the most was one who went, when was the last time? Maybe it was 1974. Or was it 84? I can't remember. No, I can't think of a time I was wrong. Then you know there's a problem. But, but then you're not trying hard enough. In my exactly. Opinion. The only way to avoid mistakes is do nothing. You yeah. do nothing in my role, you're dead in the ditch. Correct. Uh, and what, what is the one bit of 360 feedback you've had recently that you thought, that was spot on. I can, I can adapt. What, what, what bit would you share from your 360? I think the biggest thing that I've genuinely got to watch, got to watch, is the active listening piece. You know, I, I tend to be very action orientated. I tend to take decisions very quickly. Um, 
so I can sometimes analyze a situation, work out what I think about it, and then decide on a course and almost get a bit deaf, which is just really bad. You know, most of my people have forgotten more about what they do than I ever knew. So I probably ought to listen, but I, I still, particularly when I'm busy and, you know, I've, I've got new members on the board and I was chatting to them a while back and, you know, he just said to me, you know, I think we're more or less there, but you know, that last point that so-and-so made, did you take that on board? Cause it just felt like you'd made your mind up. And I thought, Ooh, old habits back again. You know, I need, I need to think about this one again because instinctively I can be, can be bad on that one. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good one for all of us. Um, and particularly funny enough, it's often the ones who are closest to you. I don't know where you have this, but my wife who also is a coach, but she's the CEO of yeah. a cha charity for vulnerable girls, uh, trafficking, modern day slavery, that kind of stuff, which you would have seen in your travels. She, she will say, but the advice you've just got from your coach and supervisor, I, I I suggested that to you a year ago. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe I didn't kind of hear that one, darling. Yeah. So um, it always makes us laugh. LQ, last one of those uh, around the campus. What would you like your legacy to be, one, in your personal life and two, in your work? I think probably most important to me is sort of loved husband and father. You know, that's the closest thing to me, you know, I'd go die on a cross with them. Um, trusted friend, and trust to me is capable, committed, good to go with a beer with, not wholly self-interested, you know, the full trust equation. Yeah. That that's how people feel about me. Respected leader. And then probably formidable feared enemy. Because mm. if you've got values and you've got a flag in the sand, when people cross them, they need to know about it. And I think that's probably important as well. I heard a lovely um, saying by a, an old headmaster, apparently this is years ago from an old school. And he was asked what he wanted for his um, children are leaving his care. And he said, oh, that's easy. The guy said, okay, well, if it's easy, tell me. He said, I wish them to be acceptable at a dance and invaluable in a shipwreck. <laughs> and the more you think about that one, I wouldn't mind being remembered like that. You know, he was acceptable at a dance. You know, he had his dysfunctional hue ways. But, you know, he was invaluable in a shipwreck. I quite like that. Yeah. Um, that, that wouldn't be a bad way to be remembered. I'm writing that down because I so love that one. Thank you. Uh, love that one in particular. So um, executive team, then the book, and then your top tip. Executive teams. Um, You've probably taken over or been in toxic executive teams or teams. What one tip would you give to turn an, uh, an executive team that, or a team that's toxic into a more high-performing team? I mean, there's lots in this area, but if you were to give one tip. Um, well, I, I think the tip is worn coach cut. <laughs> Was that? No, you, you need to deal with it. Uh, but I would say... The way to avoid toxic teams is to choose on both capability and character. And I think too often we focus on uh, capability. You know, how have they done on their last role? And by character, I mean, will they fit in my team? That isn't sycophantic that they, 
do they hold the same values as we as a team hold? That's the first thing. Two, it's be absolutely clear between you what your priorities are. So Christmas, New Year, every year I sit down and the next 10 priorities for the next year are put out. My direct reports work on those. They then are agreed between me and them. Then every single member of the organization, there's a A3 sheet and each and every member knows where they sit and what they're doing about each one of their priorities to move them ahead. And if you're spending time doing anything else that isn't on the priority list, then you've better got the priorities. And then it's agree the behaviors. Um, agree, agree the behaviors that you won't have. You know, you will not get away with bullying, yelling and shouting at my balls. Uh, there's a lot of other behaviors we just won't tolerate. Um, it will be collective responsibility. Once we've taken decision, there is just one version of the truth. You whisper it outside, you know, you'll be fired. Um, there are just little rules that govern the way that we as a leadership team act. So capability and character, priorities, so you all are joined at the hip and know what you're doing. And then the behaviors that are, you're gonna act with and what you're gonna do moving forward. And everybody in ARC has permission, body follows head, Vis visible model um, leadership, anything I do, everybody in the company has uh, absolute permission to do as well. Um, and then if you see somebody who's toxic, I think you've got to call it. So you've got to warn them. And that's what I mean by warn. And that's sort of a, this is happening. Here are the facts and data around it. Here are some examples. And this is what I require to change. This is how I require it to change. And this is when I require it to change by. And then coach. So once you've given that, there's no point in, you know, go do your best. Occasionally I'll get people mentors to try and aid and assist them on that journey. Then if they don't change, cut them, get rid of them. And that might sound a bit brutal, but you don't leave cancer in a body and toxic individuals, it spreads and you've got to deal with it. So, you know, I've said to everybody in ARC, I judge people on capability, character, commitment, and cost. The more expensive you are, the stronger you better be on the three above. And if you're on my board, you better have a really good character. You better be really capable and you better be uber committed. Um, and that's how we roll. And I think there's a lot of clarity around that. And, you know, I have removed people, as I've just said, who didn't fit. Yeah. You know, it's, they're no longer with the company. Yeah. And I think as you say it and then you do it, people sort of go, oh, right. And he's proved it as well. And people buy in then. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that. that's really my thing around boards and leadership teams. Very Can't. good. No, I love it. Um, and particularly, um, people wait too long to get rid of someone toxic when they've done through, as you say, the, the warm, the coach, um, and, and they avoid the cut. And, and one CEO um, said something which I've often used, which is, what is it you know now about this person that you'll find out in a year's time? And you already know now that they're not going to make it, they're not going to improve. So why are you waiting so long to act on it, help them find their happiness elsewhere because they're not suited to that role in your organization. Um, I do like that. Um, on to favorite books. Um, you've read a lot on uh, leadership, I imagine. You've 
certainly definitely got a book I'm looking forward to reading an exciting life well lived um, um, yeah. I think I think I want three chapters by Christmas by the way three yeah, chapters. Exactly. just just begin three chapters doesn't, doesn't matter where you begin this was the advice that I got when I wrote my book uh, yeah. which was inspiring leadership leadership lessons from my life yeah. and um, the, the publisher just said just write me three begin anywhere but write three and I think yeah. you've definitely got a book in you some people have not you have and I really would read it um, what would be the, your favourite book you've read lately uh, on leadership that you think is good? Well, I've got a very old um, mucker from my Hong Kong days who then went off and sailed around the world as a professional skipper and raced to the North Pole and has been working with me since 2006, 2007, um, doing turnarounds and cultural change and stuff. And he's written a book called, it's Manly Hopkinson, um, and it's called Compassionate Leadership. And um, so it would be just darn right wrong of me not to call that out. But that book aside, I'm not a huge digester of sort of the modern genre of leadership books. I would say the books that I often hark back to, uh, Shackleton South, yep. uh, The Moment a Man's Mark Goes Down, He Must Fix on Another, I'll Bring All My Men Home, Model Visible Leadership, you know, the gold sovereign and all of his worldly belongings on the snow will only take what we absolutely need. And then the whole leadership, sticking to word, the bravery, you know, there's so many lessons in there. Uh, T. Lawrence, I've got an old 1924 copy of wow. Seven of Wisdom. You know, he, that lovely moment of insecurity, you know, he's head of the Arab Revolt, 30th or 31st birthday, he climbs to the top of the dune, and he's got those sort of murmurings around, you know, who the hell am I to be doing this? Now that teaches you, we, whoever we are, we get insecurities stupidity and mistakes we just about that earlier he shot his own camel in the back of the head while charging down to attack the turks um so you know we do do stupid however glorious we are um who are this wilford thessinger's a great hero of mine you know a life well lived there was that lovely phrase about him a man magnificently and unabashedly out of step with his time that ability to live and thrive in other cultures and that wonderlust of experience and the rest of it um, and then I was thinking you you sort of said around um, neurosciences and stuff like that I tell you one book I'm, I'm reading at the moment that I'm really enjoying Mark Carney the former values. governor of the Bank of England has written value values I'm absolutely loving that very thoughtful um, I'm only a little way through but everything I've enjoyed and apparently is going to go in and proffer but that's thinking about the world and capitalism and other regimes and how we value things and what isn't included in our value system and what should, you know, and I, I just like it. It's the world around you. And I think you should be thinking these things and business leaders as stakeholders and the rest of it. Then there are two books that I've really enjoyed recently called, um, there's a guy, Eagleman, I think he's at MIT, wrote The Brain, The Story of You, which is super thoughtful, you know, and useful to know. Um, but he also talks about the concept of a sentient being and what differentiate. And then he talks about the merger of technology and biology as the next sort of dominion. And then there's a guy called Lanzar, who's written a book called Biocentrism, which is about the concept of, you know, how a lot of our theories, time and, you know, things taught in religion at a quantum level, how they're being dissipated through particles being entangled and, you know, and, and really this notion of a universal consciousness of which we're a part, um, which I've, I've really, because it's just very 
thought-provoking and if I need to get away from work and genuinely think about the world and my place in it and the rest of it those are two that have been real they've drawn me in and you know when you're looking forward to getting back to them you know so that's sort of my reading list but you know the world moved my cheese and all that and I I just I struggle with them um too glib but but those I just those big stories that draw me in and you can take these lovely little snippets from I I just I love and I find myself going back to them well it's interesting you mention um uh, Ernest Shackleton, I, I just was listening. I'm dyslexic, so I listen. So yeah. it, it, I think it's called Endurance by uh, Edward Lansing, where it's really the story of, of uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton. And I found that just phenomenal. It just there's so many things go wrong, but yet they find a way through. Really inspirational. Um, thank you so much for that, Hugh. Let's go on to the final two minute top tip. If, if you'd be good enough to uh, introduce yourself uh, again, and the role you have, and then just give your two-minute top tip, and then we'll roll. So it's just name, role, yep. Yep. and then and yep. my two yep. top two-minute tip. <clears throat> okay, my name's Huyen. I'm the CEO of Arc Data Centers. Um, my top two-minute tip is use your most valuable commodity well. Um, if I was to reach into your wallet and take money out of it and walk away, we'd have a distinct conversation about why. How often do you allow people to use your time badly? So use that commodity like gold dust. Really, really look about how it's used, how it's deployed. And the way that I do it, everything that I do falls into one of four buckets. It's either it must do activity. And in order to do must do, because people, time and money are finite, I decide what I'm not doing as a consequence. And that goes into the I'm not doing bucket. And then when I've done all of my must-dos, and only when I've done my must-dos, I do what I should do, and then I do what I could do. And I divide it up that way. And I would encourage people to look at everything you're intending every single day and which of those buckets it falls into. And don't be doing any shoulds, coulds, or don'ts if you haven't done your musts. I love that one. Hey, Hugh, thank you very much. A truly truly inspiring. It's nice to think, actually. Yeah, no, it was great. Thank you very much indeed. Um, We'll finish that and uh, just stay online and we'll have a bit more of a chat. But thank you for being on the Inspiring Leadership Series. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.